Today we're going to look at a prayer that Paul says he prayed all the time. He literally says, I pray this prayer without stopping. And he prayed this prayer for the believers in and around Ephesus. And I want you to notice the thing that he wanted more than anything for these believers at Ephesus wasn't political power, financial stability, physical health, material prosperity, strong families, awesome marriages, or even relational peace, though all of those things are are good blessings and some of them are actually really important. But he didn't pray for any of those things. What Paul was concerned about was so much bigger and so much more foundational than any of them, and what it was was that he wanted them to know God, to know God, to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would experience the glory and the hope and the riches and the power that were available to them in Christ. So I want you to look at this prayer with me, and I'm going to show you exactly what I mean. It starts in verse 15. We'll have it on the screen as well if if you don't have a Bible with you. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. In other words, I pray for you all the time, and I pray this thing all the time, without taking a break, without stopping That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's what Paul wouldn't stop praying for the church at Ephesus. That's what he wanted more than anything for those believers. And guys, that's what I believe he would want for us today as well. I think that's what God wants for us today, that we would know him and that the eyes of our hearts would be awakened, as it were, to the hope and the riches and the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in us. That's what he wants more than anything. Now that word know that that Paul uses here is really important for us to understand because Our entire relationship with God hinges on it. You see, the common Greek word for knowledge when, obviously, the Bible was being written in Greek was gnosis. And gnosis was used in all kinds of different contexts throughout the Hellenistic world. There really wasn't anything too significant about it. It's just a a basic knowledge of stuff. But Paul didn't just use the word gnosis here. Paul added um, a preposition to the beginning of it. And he added this preposition because he wanted the word to be intensified. He wanted to evoke a different image when he talked about knowing God. And so epinosis is what he's praying for here. That's the word he uses. It's this kind of knowledge that's a a deep and thorough and intimate experiential knowledge. In fact, it, it kind of has its heritage in the Old Testament And this Hebrew word yada, which is used in Genesis chapter 4 when it says Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son named Cain. As one scholar put it, it suggests a participation in the thing known. It's the most intimate and experiential and thorough knowledge you can possibly have. So in other words, the knowledge of God Paul is praying for here is so deep and it's so full that it requires an actual participation in and experience of 
the God he's talking about. He wants us to not only believe wonderful things, he's just kind of spent the first 14 verses spelling out wonderful things. He doesn't want us to just believe them. He actually wants us to participate in them. One of the best illustrations of this in my own life is my knowledge of the Grand Canyon. Uh, for most of my life, I knew that the Grand Canyon existed, as did most of you, right? Maybe you read about it in books. I, I actually saw some video of it on National Geographic in like the IMAX theater, and I was a little kid, and I was so scared of heights that I literally, literally crumbled to my knees because I thought I was going to fall into the Grand Canyon. But I, I'd seen videos of it even as a kid. Even, even the videos and, and the photos I saw were enough to like get an emotional response out of me. I knew it was there. I totally believed in it. I had even heard other people's stories of being at the Grand Canyon. For example, uh, I was a college pastor for a number of years, and there were, there were these four or five college students that decided to take a road trip across America and do this dance called the Bernie, which was really cool like five years ago. I don't know if you remember this. They decided they were going to do the Bernie in front of every state sign along their path from North Carolina to California. And, and on their way, they actually got to the Grand Canyon and they filmed themselves like on these really dangerous ledges doing the Bernie. And it actually uh, went kind of viral for 2011, like got a lot of views. It was really cool. And I remember I watched that and I'm like, wow, that's the Grand Canyon. That is awesome. That, that, that's amazing. I, I knew as much as I could know from books and photos and videos. Had a lot of knowledge of it. But then... A few years ago, my twin brother had this crazy idea that he was going to have a destination wedding at the Grand Canyon, and his ceremony was just going to be on the side of the canyon, and so we all just were like, cool, man, like, if, that, if that's what you want to do, and so we packed our bags, and we flew out there, and we had a wedding, and let me just tell you, it was absolutely incredible, okay? It was incredible. It actually kind of rained for a little bit, and so everyone left. And then it stopped raining, and we had like a private wedding on the Grand Canyon, and no one else was there. It was unreal. It was so vast. It was like nothing I had ever seen or experienced before. And really, all I can say about it is that you have to see it for yourself. You have to experience in person because words cannot describe it. Those videos cannot do it justice. And if you've ever been there and you've ever seen it, you know that there is an infinite difference in knowing about the Grand Canyon and actually experiencing it firsthand. It's, it's, there's not even a comparison being swallowed up in its glory. And what I want you to see today is that the same thing is true of our knowledge and experience of God. Do you understand that it is possible to know God and to even know him by faith, and to be saved by grace, and to be adopted into his family, and yet at the same time not experience the glory and the joy and the power and the hope of any of it in your day-to-day -day existence. Did you know that that was possible? Some of you were like, yeah, I feel that. I felt that. It's possible to possess everything in Christ and at the same time never participate in him. You possess it, you're saved, you know him, and yet day in and day out there is no experience of him. Does that sound familiar? See, we have to remember that Paul was writing his letter to believers. He is praying for Christians 
In the first 14 verses, he says they're chosen, adopted, holy, blameless, forgiven, redeemed, sealed, secure in Christ. And the first part of this prayer, he says, I praise God every time I think about you for your faith and for your love in all of the saints. They weren't just cultural Christians, okay, guys? They weren't just showing up on Sundays to, to, to check off the list or to, do, to be a part of the social club that we, we do in the South. Like They weren't climbing the spiritual ladder to get God to give them everything that they wanted. They had a saving knowledge of God, and yet Paul says to them, I don't stop praying for you that the eyes of your heart would be awakened because there's more to know. You still need to go deeper. There's more of him you haven't experienced yet. And what he's essentially saying is what we all say about the Grand Canyon. Guys, you have to see this for yourself. You have to participate in it. Not just gnosis, epinosis. And so you see there is deeper intimacy and a, and a fuller knowledge and a more tangible joy, hope, and power waiting for us in God than we could possibly imagine. And what Paul is praying here for you and I is that we would get there. That we would go there. So let me ask you again at the beginning, what do you want more than anything? Is it that? Is it to know God like that? And how often do we settle for less? How often are, are we content with a, a basic level knowledge? I read about it in a book, or I heard someone else's story, and that was really cool, and that's enough. Well, guys, there are blessings that we can experience, that we can go deeper in. And, and Paul shows us that this deeper knowledge of God manifests itself in, in participation in an experience of three things. And really all I want to do today is show you these three things quickly and briefly and then show you how we actually go deeper in them. Because I think that's my biggest question is like, okay, that's it, got it, how do I go deeper? And so let's just start with these three things and have our hearts awakened to them, and then we can go into how we actually get there. So first is hope. The first thing that Paul prays that we would go deeper in, experience, and participate in is hope. Look back at verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. One author said, hope is faith standing on tiptoe, just looking for what, what's to come and um, I love that definition. Usually when the word hope is used throughout scripture, it's used to talk about something that's coming in the future, uh, something that hasn't happened yet. So like the return of Christ, uh, the resurrection, our glorification, new heavens, new earth, all of those different things are happening in the future. But here, Paul uses the word hope about something that's already happened something that happened in the past, actually something that happened before the foundations of the world were ever laid. He says it's the hope of our calling, that we've been called. It's incredible truth that before we were ever born, before we could do anything good to earn it, or before we could do anything bad to lose it, God set his love on us and he adopted us into his family as sons and daughters. And so our calling is secure. It's, it's absolutely certain. And the guys, the reason our hearts need to be constantly reawakened to the hope of our calling or the hope of our election, for lack of a better word, is that they constantly revert back to the hope of our effort. 
we need to have our hearts awakened over and over and over again to the hope of our election because they constantly revert back to the hope of our own effort. We think we've got to earn the favor of God with our performance. And if our hope depends on us, guys, in our own performance and our own success, then every time we sin, every time we wander away from our Heavenly Father, you know what happens? We, we don't have hope, we have doubt and despair that maybe we actually didn't belong to him in the first place because I'm still sinning, I'm still struggling, I'm still going through this. You guys ever felt that? See, guys, we're really good at starting things and, and really bad at finishing them. Um, whether it's working out more or eating healthy or maybe it's reading instead of watching Netflix. Like, we're really good at saying, like, I'm going to do this now, okay? No more cookout for me. <laughs> and then, like, the next day, sorry. Uh, we're really good at New Year's resolutions but really lousy at the same time at following through. Early on in our marriage, Caroline and I, uh, we watched a documentary called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead on Netflix. Has anyone seen this documentary? It's pretty fascinating. You go home and watch it. It's basically a film about this guy who's fat, sick, and nearly dead. Uh, he, he's overweight. He has all kinds of ailments, no real happiness or purpose. He's dying. And, and then he decides to make a change. And instead of eating food like normal human beings, he decides that he's going to buy a juicer and every meal of every day for the rest of his life, he's just going to juice fruit and vegetables, okay? And so the documentary is about this guy juicing, and I don't remember all of the details, but by the end of the documentary, I mean, it traces him for months, maybe even years, I can't remember, it's been a while, we've been married for, for like eight years now, right? Eight and a half years. Um, and so uh, he, he juices, and, and all of a sudden, he's not obese anymore, and all of a sudden, he doesn't have arthritis, and his diabetes is under control, and he's happy, and, and he's walking, and now he's running, and he's doing all of this stuff. And Caroline and I are watching this documentary, and we're like, we got to start juicing. Like, let's do this. Like, we don't need food anymore. Like, let's go out and get a juicer, and let's do this. So we did. We went out, and we bought this like, really expensive juicer, and we bought all these vegetables that I'd never even heard of before. Like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'd never heard of kale before. And we went out and got all of this kale. And all this other stuff, we just started mixing it with apples and pears and mangoes and kale and spinach and all of this stuff. And we're like, we're going to do this for the rest of our lives. We're going to be the healthiest we've ever been in our whole life. And I'm not even joking. I probably lasted like two days. Can you tell me how long I lasted? I always forget. It was a day. <laughs> not trying to exaggerate here. Uh, at this point in my life, you have to understand, I was eating cookout every other day, okay? And so this was like a, a drastic, dramatic transition from like cookout every other day to like no food. And it didn't work, okay? It failed miserably. Man, we're good at starting things, right? And uh, we have great intentions and, and great motives but we're really bad at finishing. And guys, if our salvation were up to us, we would be in huge trouble right now. Wouldn't we? I know I would. We'd all be done because sin still pulls at us like that cookout tray. And it still has our name. And it still has our number. And it still knows how to trip us up. And it still knows what we like and what we wanted. And it still knows all of those desires that we used to gratify in our flesh. And if it were up to us, guys, we would be done right now. Oh, but if it's all up to him, from beginning to end, 
And if it all hinges on his unchanging character and his unfailing promises and his perfect faithfulness, then guys, our hope is secure. And we have to grasp that our position in God's family rests solely on his promise to us, not on our performance for him. So we can sing with that old hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Why? Because his oath, his covenant, and his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he is all my hope and stay. So on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Guys, that is the hope of our calling. Do you know it? Have you experienced it? Second thing that Paul prays that we would have our hearts awakened to is riches Look back at verse 18, having your eyes, the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know not only the hope, but what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this is a really interesting phrase, and if you read it quickly, it sounds like he's talking about our inheritance, which we just looked at last week, that we're on our way to this glorious inheritance, the Holy Spirit secured us. But if you slow down and, and you take a closer look at it, you realize it's not talking about the riches of our inheritance in God. It's actually talking about God's inheritance in us. It shows us something really incredible, that God is not only our portion and glory, but we are his portion and glory. We are actually his inheritance. And his inheritance in us is, is closely connected to his calling of us because it shows us the scope of what we've actually been called to. See, God didn't just call us out of sin and darkness and, and leave us alone and say something like, okay, guys, um, you're welcome for all that redemption and forgiveness stuff, uh, but I think you've got it from here. I'll, I'll see you when I see you. No, he, he called us out of sin and darkness, and then he called us into his family as the first fruits of his reconciling and restoring work in the universe, and now he loves us as his own sons and daughters. And so while the hope of our calling shows us God's intention for us, the riches of his inheritance shows us his affection for us. It shows us that we're actually his treasure and his prize and the apple of his eye, and we are worth more to him than everything else he has created in the universe. So one author put it this way, in some wondrous way, we have become a source of untold wealth in the balance sheets of heaven. We are assets of incredible worth to the living God, the brightest jewels in his crown. And Paul says, I want you to know that. Not just intellectually, not just even in a saving way. I want you to go deeper and deeper into the experience of that unbelievable truth. I don't want you to just believe it with your mind. I want you to feel it in your heart, to participate in it. You are loved as a son and daughter of God. You are his most prized possession. 
There is nothing that he cares about more than you, his son and daughter, and it has nothing to do with your performance. And Paul says, I want you to know the riches of his inheritance in you. And third, he says, I want you to know power. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Guys, Paul is trying everything in his power to outdo himself in explaining the power of God. He uses synonym after synonym after synonym. In fact, there's four of them. Power, might, authority, exaltation, just in this short little couple of verses. He's using every word in his dictionary to try to explain that God is not only supremely powerful, but that his power is at work in our lives and it is meant to be our power so that our lives can actually be lives of victory. Our lives don't have to be lives of anxiety and worry, worry and despair and depression. They can actually be lives of confidence. That's supposed to be our experience. We don't have to wait until heaven to experience the power of God and the victory he brings over sin. Now guys, it is, um, it's easy to talk about knowing God. I would imagine if you're here on a Sunday morning in a post-post-Christian society that there's at least a part of you that has the desire to know God. Um, I, I would imagine if you're anything like me that maybe your experience of God and your participation in him don't actually match what you believe about him. Like that day in, day out, hope, confidence, peace, rest, joy, power, like those are things that you totally believe, and yet, why, why is it so hard to live in those things? And if that's you, the big question at this point then is how do we grow in this kind of knowledge and experience of God? If it's actually possible to have our hearts awakened to a full and thorough and deep knowledge and experience of him, how do we participate in it? You guys want to know that? Well, there are three ways that, that sort of build off of each other and, and kind of lead into each other. And the first one is so obvious, I feel kind of silly even saying it, but I have to say it. It's that you have to actually spend quality time with him. You, you have to spend time with him. Listen to him as he speaks to you through his word. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Saturate your mind with it. Let it transform your heart. Get alone with him and just talk to him. You know, he loves hearing his kids talk to him. Doesn't matter what time of the day it is either. Jesus actually uses a story. You can go to him at three in the morning and ask for a glass of water and he's gonna be ready to get it for you. You can't experience intimacy with God if you never actually spend time with him, guys. I, I, I feel silly even saying that because it's so intuitive, right? But it doesn't stop there, guys. If you, if you really want to know God and experience the hope of your calling and the riches of his inheritance in you and the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in you, you have to put his words into practice. 
In other words, if you want to experience God in profound ways, you have to obey him with a profound faith. And this is where many of us really struggle in our relationship with God and why so many Christians don't know him deeply. Because it's easy to open up our Bibles and read a couple chapters every day, but it's a totally different story to try to put it into action. Am I alone here? So when God talks about money, for example, and, and he says we shouldn't store up treasure here and now, and, and we shouldn't worry about tomorrow, we shouldn't worry about how we're going to put food in our bellies, and we shouldn't worry about how we're going to clothe our bodies and where we're going to lay our heads down at night, we should trust him in everything. We say like, yes, that sounds good, but I'm still going to put more money in my bank account than in your kingdom, because when push comes to shove, I really need that security. Like, what if my car breaks down? What if I have an unforeseen medical expense? What if there's a fire and I lose all my stuff for a hurricane, which we're having a lot of hurricanes for some reason? I, I need a nest egg. I struggle with that. You struggle with that? God says, don't worry about tomorrow. I got you because you're my son and you're my daughter. Just trust me. And I'm like, yes, but I got two kids and another on the way. By the way, we're pregnant. I keep forgetting to announce that. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, we are excited about that, by the way. Um, oh, man, it's so hard to, to put it into action, though, right? And then we wonder, and get this, guys, then we wonder why we never experience the supernatural provision and power of God in our lives. Well, we got it in our nest egg. Why, why would he need to show up? See, we're prone to fear. And so most of the time, we want to see how God's going to provide for us, but before we actually act in faith, and obey him. We want to know how he's going to do it first. You know, like, okay, God, if I invest in your kingdom and if I do this, like, I got to know you're going to cover my bills. And he doesn't work like that. At least that's not how he works in scripture. For example, Noah is like a perfect picture of this. You're probably familiar with the story. God tells Noah to build an ark the size of a football field because there's a storm coming. It's going to wipe out the whole planet. But remember, Noah has never heard of rain before. He's never seen it. As far as Noah is concerned, rain is like unicorns. It's a mythical thing. And I just want you to try to put your, yourself in his shoes for a minute. God is telling him to dedicate his entire life to prepare for something that might not even exist. But Noah doesn't ask God to explain rain to him. He doesn't ask him to lay out a strategy for like, okay, how exactly are you going to get animals into this thing? Like if I build it, let's just say I build it, how does the two by two happen? He doesn't ask for that. He, he doesn't even ask God to prove that he'll actually bring rain in the end if he builds a boat. And even though, guys, I'm sure there were times when he doubted and his family doubted and he lost friends and he lost all kinds of other things like his reputation and everybody mocked him, he trusted his father and he obeyed him. And then, 
after Noah obeyed, what happened? Rain. Power. I would imagine that that Noah left that ark with a deeper experience and participation in God and his power and his hope and his riches than when he went into that boat. Or you go later on in Genesis to Abraham. God tells Abraham to pack up everything he owns and his entire clan, and he says, you know what, man? Just start walking. I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I'm not going to tell you how you're going to get there. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen along the way. Just start walking. Again, try to put yourself in in Abraham's shoes. Just move, right? And then after he has packed up everything and he started walking, he's on this journey, the same God who has promised to give him um, a family that outnumbers the stars tells him to look at his only son, Isaac, and go kill him, sacrifice him to prove his loyalty to him. So again, Abraham has no idea what what God's doing. No idea why or what or how. But he trusts his father and he obeys him. And he takes his only son, the son that he loved more than anything, the son of promise, takes him up to this hill and he's about to sacrifice him because he trusts his father and he's going to obey his father. And at just the right time, God shows up and he provides a ram. Do you think Abraham left that experience with a deeper understanding and knowledge of his God? You better believe it. And then finally, just, just again, I'm, I'm going to prove this point to you. Just think about the three Hebrew boys we used to sing about. You can't pronounce their names, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar says, Everyone in this empire is going to bow down to this awesome golden statue every time this music plays. And if you don't bow down, you're getting thrown into the furnace and it's game over. So everyone bows down to this statue except for these three teenage boys. They refuse to bow down and so they're thrown in to the furnace. And it's so hot that the guards that are throwing them in actually die from the, from the fumes. But instead of burning up, what happens? God shows up. Jesus actually shows up. It's a Christophany. And they look into the furnace and they're like, I thought we threw three people into that fire. Why are there four? Like, that must be God. Get them out of there. And he saves them and he rescues them. Presence, power, protection. They would have never experienced those things if they hadn't obeyed. They hadn't just down. See, guys, all of these men, Noah, Abraham, even the boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, knew that God had called them to live lives of radical obedience, even when there weren't answers, even when they had no idea what was going to happen. And as a result of their obedience, God made himself known to them in ways beyond their wildest imaginations. So if you want to experience the presence and power and provision of God, if you want to know him and experience him, you have to live a life of radical faith. 
You can't just spend time with him. If you want intimacy with him and a deep and full experience of him, you actually have to obey him. And that leads to the final and probably most difficult thing in this process of knowing God, and that is suffering. If spending time with God leads to radical obedience, guys, radical obedience leads to a fellowship in his suffering. In a letter that Paul wrote to his friends at Philippi, he talked about his longing to know God. And he, he used the same word in that letter that we've been talking about today, epinosis. And he says something really important that you and I have to grasp. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what we just talked about in Ephesians, right? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and get this and share in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, guys, and you need to pay attention to this. If you want to know God and experience the power of the resurrection, you have to share in his suffering and participate in his death. One of my friends shared a really powerful illustration of this that he actually got when he was putting his son down to bed. His son, really afraid of the dark, which you know a lot of kids are. And he would, he would cry, and, and he would throw tantrums uh, every night as, his, as my friend was trying to put him down. And uh, it was a, a big ordeal. And so my friend had this brilliant idea. He, he decided that one day while his son was gone, I think at school or something, he was going to go and get those glow-in-the-dark stars and planets. And he just plastered them all over his son's ceiling and walls and just put them everywhere even with some glow sticks and all of this stuff. It was like a huge work of art. And so that night, he's putting his son down to bed, and his son's kind of throwing the tantrum again. He's really upset. I'm, Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared of the dark. And, and his dad said, wait, just watch. And he goes over to the light, and he hits that switch, and all of a sudden, all of these stars and planets and glow sticks just beam and burst all throughout the room. And his son's like, oh, this is awesome. He was totally blown away, and so my friend was like, oh, man, we're good. And so he, he started to walk out the door, and as he started to walk out the door, his, his son started crying again. Dad, I'm scared of the dark. Dad, don't leave me. Turn the light on. And, and so my friend's like, oh, okay. And so he, he turned the light back on, and of course, as would happen, all of the, the glow sticks and the stars and the planets faded back into this neutral green thing. And his son was like, wait, I want the stars, I want the planets, I want the, I want the light. And so his son, my friend turned the lights back off, and they went back and forth like this several times. Until finally, like my friend just looked at his son and said, listen, son, if you want the beauty of all of these lights, it has to be dark. Like, it has to be dark in order for you to see the light. Uh, guys, the, the principle is true of us as well. You see, the little boy's problem in this story is our problem as well. We want to experience the brilliance and the power and the hope of the riches of God, but we don't want to go through the darkness. What we have to see is that they go together. You can't have one without the other. We don't get to experience the light of the sun without first walking through the darkness of the night. We don't get to experience the hope of our calling until we walk through the despair of the storm. 
We don't get to participate in the power of the resurrection until we participate in the humiliation and pain of the cross. You see, the hope you experience won't be of God until the only logical response to your circumstances is despair. Do you guys get that? Hope is not a virtue if everything is good around you. You don't need hope if everything's good. When do you need hope? When is hope actually a virtue, a spiritual gift from God? It's when you're in despair and there's no logical reason to have it. That's when you know it actually comes from God, right? Power, the power you participate in won't be supernatural until you've got absolutely nothing left within yourself. That's when God shows up, when he has brought you so low that you say, I can't do this on my own. And then what does he do? He, he lifts you back up with his strength. And you know for sure, this was not me. This was him. And this is where it all comes full circle to the question I asked you at the beginning, guys. What do you want more than anything? Because if what you want more than anything is material wealth or physical health or romantic bliss or career success or whatever, then suffering and affliction will be unbearable because they will be um, hindrances to what you actually want. But if what you want more than anything is to know and experience intimacy with your Father, then suffering and affliction will be embraced because they draw us deeper into him. So I'll ask you again, what is it that you want more than anything? Jesus didn't get the resurrection before the cross. And so when Paul says, I want to share in his sufferings, that means that we're now supposed to get up on a cross. Every single day, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross and you got to die to yourself every day. And guys, listen to this. When we think about the suffering of Jesus, we usually are thinking about like Calvary. And people, you know, whipping him and putting a crown of thorns on him and a robe and hanging him up on a cross. And we're like, how, how do we share in that? How do we participate in that? And what I want you to see is that the suffering that Christ experienced wasn't just Calvary. Did you know that every time he was tempted to sin and he was victorious over that sin and he said no to that sin, do you know what happened? He suffered. Do you know what, what you experience when you say no to temptation? When the devil's just bombarding you with that thing that trips you up over and over and over again, and every time you say no, it doesn't get easier. The pressure just mounts, right? And every time you say no again, it's like, oh, now I want to do it even more. Oh, man, now my headache's even worse. Oh, man, I, now I really can't sleep. And every time you say no, it just gets compounded. Jesus said no every single time, every single day of his life for 33 years. And he suffered for it. Because Satan threw everything that he had at that man. All he had to do was fail one time. You guys get that, right? Satan just had to trip him up one time. If he could just get him to sin one time, one slanderous word, one time of gossip, one time of lust, one time of arrogance apart from his father, one time of anger in a sinful way. All he had to do was get him to trip up one time, and the whole plan is done. 
Salvation's off the table. You don't think Satan threw everything that he had at him every second of every day? Jesus suffered under temptation. Part of getting up on a cross and sharing in the fellowship of our Savior's suffering is to say, you know what? I'm gonna say no to sin just like you did. I can't do it on my own. I need your power. I need your spirit. And when we suffer, guys, you know what? We're drawn into the fellowship of his resurrection. We share in it. Jesus said, after you've suffered for a little while under temptation, I'm gonna send my spirit and he's gonna restore you. He's gonna bear you up. He's gonna hold you up. And so every time you say no and you go through that suffering and you, and you mortify your flesh and it hurts physiologically, neurologically, mentally, emotionally, crucifying your flesh hurts. It's not abstract. And every time we do that, we share in his suffering, and the same thing's true. Every time we do that, we share in the power of the resurrection. So guys, share in his suffering. Don't just read about him. Obey him. I'll ask you again, what, what do you want more than anything? Is it to know and be known by God? I want you to know that there is nothing better than that. There's nothing that brings more hope, more joy, and more power than knowing God. So walk with him. Spend time with him. Obey him. Suffer with him. And may your hearts be awakened to the hope of your calling and the riches of his glorious inheritance in you and the power that raised Christ from the dead that is now at work in you for his glory. Let's pray.